Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Howard Burton about a series of science books based on Ideas Roadshow collections entitled Conversations About. And today, we will talk about conversations about astrophysics and cosmology. This Ideas Roadshow collection includes five Ideas Roadshow books that have been developed from filmed, wide-ranging conversations with the following leading physicists, Roger Penrose, Scott Tremaine, Paul Steinhardt, Justin Curry, and Rocky Cobb. This collection includes a det- detailed preface highlighting the connections between the different books, which offer a uniquely accessible window into frontline research and scholarship while each individual book also includes a detailed introduction plus questions for discussion. The books explore a wide range of fascinating topics related to astrophysics and cosmology through an engaging dialogue format and will give a non-specialist a genuine sense of what questions the world-leading cosmologists are grappling with and what the world of scientific discovery is really like. Topics examined include black holes, dark matter, the process of discovery, dark energy, cosmic inflation, the multiverse, conformal cyclic cosmology, and much more. My guest today, Howard Burton, is the founder and host of All Ideas Roadshow Conversations and was the founding executive director of Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics. He holds PhD in Theoretical Physics and an uh, MA in Philosophy. Well, Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. So as we're going through the very unprecedented times during the pandemic, I would like to start by asking, how has the pandemic influenced you and your work? Um, So this is uh, an embarrassing admission, um, given the amount of uh, pain and suffering and dislocation that so many people all around the world are experiencing. But um, in many ways, the pandemic has been uh, an extremely positive thing for, uh, for, for me, insofar as it um, forced me to shelter in place and um, not do any traveling and think very long and hard about what next steps should be in terms of uh, business development, in terms of what I wanted to do. Uh, it, it forced me to really come to terms with um, what the strengths and weaknesses are of the various different projects that I have done and that I am planning on doing in the future. And um, so for me, it's, it's actually been ironically quite a positive thing to uh, be forced to take time out and really reflect about how to move forwards. Uh, so I, I guess I should probably just say that right from the very beginning. And, and then I guess the second point is, I think that there are all sorts of really interesting aspects associated with the pandemic. And, and you, of course, would know far better than I, given your background, um, that are not often commented on or appreciated in the media in terms of the what I think is really breathtaking uh, biomedical and biotechnology, biotechnological advances that uh, that have been achieved, and uh, and I think that's very interesting, and that certainly piqued my curiosity in various different directions in terms of what's going on, how shall we be dealing with this in the future, and um, where we go from here. So I, I think. Intellectually, it's been interesting. Uh, business-wise, it's actually been very um, um, positive. And I guess the last thing to say is that in many ways, of course, it's been very depressing, not only because of the 
suffering that's that's going on around the world, but there has been a lot less in the way of coordination uh, uh, amongst different nations and different uh, communities than I would have liked to have seen. And how did you manage the constant stream of uh, the me- uh, media information that uh, we were under? Did you have any strategies to modulate, for example, the amount of information and news? Yes, I, I modulate uh, a great deal insofar as uh, I uh, I turn a lot of things off. Um, so I'm pretty old-fashioned in terms of information. Um there's this sense that a lot of people have that, uh, you know, there's fake news and we don't know who to trust anymore. And the world has changed remarkably in the past decade or so in terms of the quality of information. I don't actually find that to be the case at all. Uh, in terms of normal media, uh, one of my, one of the, the, the outlets that I have is the economist uh and I, so far as i can tell that hasn't changed in in certainly since i've been reading it which is over 25 years uh i go to websites uh put out by national health authorities and the like and i find them filled with a plethora of interesting and valuable information um i i don't do social media as a general rule um so maybe that classifies me in the, in the dinosaur zone, but um, a lot of those sorts of things I, I just simply don't indulge in, uh, not only because uh, I'm somewhat suspicious of them, but also because one only has a certain amount of time to devote to this sort of thing. So when I want to think about what's happening, what's new, uh, then uh, I, I tend to go to what what I believe are trusted sources uh, and reasonably objective sources. Um, and then, of course, there are mainstream newspapers uh, I read Le Monde here in France. Uh, there's the New York Times, this sort of thing. Um, and as I said before, The Economist. And so far as I can tell, um, that hasn't changed um, dramatically in, in, a, in a very long time. Interesting. So it seems that you've been more reflectionary rather than reactionary, which could be a very good uh, approach to dealing with this situation, which can be quite hard for all of us. Yeah, well, I'm not a young person like you, you see. So if I if I had to, uh, I, d- I also don't feel the pressure. I think this is a, a general comment. Uh, if you're in your 20s uh, or your teens and maybe even your early 30s, there's obviously a lot of pressure, a lot of social pressure to be interacting with other people, to be uh, uh to be up with the, the zeitgeist, as it were, and 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 uh, to be going out, this kind of thing. Um uh, something that you might uh, have to look forward to is once you get older, uh, those pressures diminish, uh, if not actually go effectively to zero. And, uh, and that, that means that it's not, it's not so much that reflection becomes something that you, uh, you choose to do. It's just something that uh, has a great deal more appeal to you than, uh, than when you're younger. Interesting. So can you tell us a little bit more about your background? Sure. Um, so I have uh, a background in, um, in in theoretical physics and and I guess also in the humanities a little bit. I did a master's degree in philosophy and I did a PhD in theoretical physics. Uh, I'm Canadian by origin, and um, and uh, those so those degrees were in Canada, although I did another one uh, elsewhere. But uh, that's where the principal amount of my my schooling came from. And after I did my my PhD, um, so there's something which I think you might appreciate. But uh, at the time, this was in the late 1990s, so it was pretty clear that the job market for theoretical physics, certainly from somebody in my position where I hadn't got my PhD yet. Princeton at the age of 23 or whatever it is, um, we're pre- the, the situation was fairly dire. So I had a, a pretty clear understanding before I even began my PhD that the likelihood of having an academic career in that area was quite low. So I went in with the attitude of, well, um, let's just have fun. Let's learn something that, that is really interesting and that I'm passionate and excited about. And afterwards, I'll have to go into the real world, as it were. And the real world didn't have a great deal in the way of opportunity. Uh, so the standard options were teaching at a high school or uh, 
or, or primarily working in the finance industry, that was something going to Wall Street or going to the city in London was something that was regarded as uh, as, a, as a real option for somebody with mathematical skills. Um, and uh, so I was all set to do that after I finished my PhD. And in fact, I had a, a position uh, in New York and then I balked because I thought that was just terrible. And so I wrote a bunch of letters to uh, various different people thinking, okay, I have these other degrees. I can perhaps do something else. And, uh, and I, uh, I, I contacted a bunch of CEOs in different companies. Most of them were in the U.S., but there were a few in Canada. And basically said, please help save me from uh, a lucrative career in finance. And uh, <laughs> one of them responded, and uh, he was somebody who was the co-CEO of a company in Canada that I had never heard of at the time called Research in Motion, a company that made Blackberries, uh, which were these uh, very popular, at the time, pagers. They weren't even phones. This was before smartphones. And he said... This is very interesting. You can always work here at RIM, which was the, the acronym of the company. But I'm thinking about doing something else, and maybe we can talk. And that turned out to be to lead to a rather unique opportunity to build and then eventually run a theoretical physics institute in Canada called uh, Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics. Excuse me. <coughs> so I did that for uh, the better part of a decade, and then I... Uh, moved on and I went to France and worked on a variety of writing and consulting projects. And then I started something called Ideas Roadshow, which was really based upon uh, my experiences at Perimeter, uh, because one of the things that we did at Perimeter was not only develop this uh, research mandate in all sorts of different directions, but also we did uh, a lot of outreach activities. So the usual sorts of things and some of the not-so-usual sorts of things. So the usual sorts of things, of course, are running uh, lectures and, uh, and a few programs for students, so we did that. We also ran uh, programs for teachers. We also did festivals, and we really tried to have a very strong public presence for all sorts of different reasons. Um, and I started to appreciate that one of the things that was quite popular was when I would hold informal conversations with the guests uh, who who would come, and most of these people, because of course we were we had this theoretical physics institute, so not only did we have a lot of faculty and a lot of uh, people who were associated with the institute on a, on a quasi permanent basis, but we had a lot of high level people coming through. So it was very customary to get these uh, these individuals to be giving lectures and to be participating in our outreach programs. And many of them were quite uh, excited and pleased to do so. And, and uh, it was very gratifying to see. And what I would do is frequently, in addition to the standard lectures and talks and so forth, I would hold informal conversations with them. And this was something that I think uh, resonated quite strongly with people because not, not as a substitute, but in addition, because it gave them an added window into the excitement, the passion, the frustrations, and the lifestyle of a working uh, physicist. Because as you know, when, when people give talks, talks are wonderful, and I'm certainly not opposed to them in any way, but they, they, they only do uh, one thing. Uh, well, maybe I should back up. I shouldn't say they only do one thing, but they, they, they are part of a, uh, of a coherent, polished approach to conveying information, which is uh, very appreciated in many different contexts, but um, but sometimes it's nice to get uh, a more candid, less polished, perhaps more spontaneous and authentic view that might arise in a conversational context. And so it became very clear that that was a worthy complement and something which uh, uh, could be uh, of tremendous value. And I filed that away in my mind. And then years later, I thought to myself, well. Uh, maybe I can harness the affordances of, of all of this wonderful digital media technology that we have now and go around and engage with people in a wide variety of fields, certainly including physics and the natural sciences, but maybe extend that ambit even more and hold filmed conversations with people where I can extract that 
uh, information from them. And, uh, and this is what I did. And uh, because, again, recognizing that it is not the case, as is so often conveyed by university administrators, one of the perils of being an academic administrator yourself, you see, is that you hang around lots of other academic administrators. And the tendency is that they will whine and say, oh, it's a real problem we have at our university because we have all these wonderful faculty and they're all so high level and they do this fascinating work, but, uh, but I can't get them to talk to the media. And, and, uh, and I can't get them to talk about their, their work. And so it's hidden under a bushel. And this was interesting to me because it was 180 degrees from my experience where uh, I couldn't get these people to actually stop talking about their work uh, mm. to, to a general public or, or otherwise. And I'm sure you've experienced uh, similar sorts of things. So that led me to conclude that the problem wasn't that the people were incapable of communicating their ideas or unwilling to communicate their ideas. It was that in many cases, there wasn't a suitable platform for them to do so. So I thought, well, let's go and create such a platform. And that was the, the genesis of Ideas Roadshow. And, and over, the, uh, over the succeeding years, I've managed to hold uh, long format informal conversations about research uh, that were filmed with over 100 people in various different fields. And that was the, uh, the genesis of that project. And then I guess to bring you uh, completely up to date, uh, so these conversations were filmed and from, we did a lot of work on the video editing side of things. And I learned a lot of things, uh, in that media and we built various databases for universities for high schools, the general public and public libraries and so forth and so on. Um, at the end of this long process, I've come to appreciate the fact that, um, two things, I guess. The first is that Perhaps the best way to actually highlight and expose this content, despite the fact that they are film conversations, is actually in print form. So I've spent a lot of time converting all of this to, uh, to, to print, and I can give you a sense of why that's the case in a while. But anyway, that's conclusion number one. And conclusion number two is that video, or at least film, does have certain affordances and does allow for all sorts of really important ways of conveying information um, in, the, uh, in the space of ideas, but, the, but perhaps its greatest strength is actually being able to compare and contrast different perspectives and different views uh, by presenting them in a documentary-style format. And so that's something that I'm simultaneously motivated to pursue in the, in the months and years ahead. Um, so I'm really uh, appreciating the comment that you made that uh, scientists indeed are capable and willing to communicate their science, but often they just don't have the approach or platform. And um, so having you here, I think uh, we're at a really good uh, good place to, to ask you, what are your ideas about the formats and ways on how you approach to communicate different depths, perhaps of uh, scientific uh, field or communicate more sort of a human side of the scientist, what would you use? Videos or, as you said, print for some ideas? Well, I think there are a variety of ways to do it. And, and, and again, you have a wealth of experience and what you're doing very much resonates with the spirit of what I'm saying. Um, I, I think the most important thing is to ensure that you're doing something in a sufficiently long format way that the scientist doesn't feel that she has to condense what it is that she's doing or saying she has to trivialize or make her work superficial, that she can go into as much detail as she feels is necessary to convey the points. Um, and also to do one's homework as uh, on the other side, as the, as the interviewer or as the, uh, platonic Socratic interlocutor or, or whatever you want to call it, your job is to be able to extract that information or to stimulate the expert to be able to convey that information. And so that necessitates that you have to actually do sufficient homework yourself to understand what it is that they're doing, to have thought about it, to be able to approach the conversation in a way where you can be um, able to uh, to get at the heart of what they're uh, 
what they're interested in and and what they're motivated uh, by. And I I would say that the other thing that you have to do is um, something which was difficult for me, as you might imagine, listening to me ramble on. But you you have to also be able to shut up. Uh, you, you (laughs) You have to know when to stop talking yourself and give people the opportunity to be able to convey their ideas in a relaxed and informal way. Because as you know very well, it's all about trust. It's all about them feeling that you are going to faithfully convey their ideas that won't take things out of context or make them look ridiculous, but done solely motivated by a desire to genuinely transmit what they believe in and why. Well, today we really want you to talk extensively, so don't worry about that. (laughs) (laughs) So I would like to ask maybe you have uh, any advice to uh, young career researchers who perhaps are thinking about uh, going to an alternative career path, something like science communication, but are still unsure whether they can leave uh, sort of hard sciences? Well, this is something that I feel quite passionate about. I mentioned earlier that when I was younger, there wasn't really much of uh, an alternative in terms of career paths other than an academic path, at least in, in physics, perhaps in biology, there are more opportunities, or maybe I didn't look quite as carefully as I might have. Um, but I do think that there is a golden age that is dawning right now, and you are at the forefront of it. Um, and that is being able to harness the, the opportunities that digital media provide to be able to create a wide spectrum of innovative and substantive products for the general consumer without, by harnessing your skills and your training, if you are somebody who, who has had the good fortune to, to be exposed to that, and at the same time, render those ideas comprehensible and stimulating to the general public. And um, I think the opportunity to do that just simply didn't exist 20 years ago. And now I think it does exist. And in fact, I, I have uh, recently been writing quite a bit about how I think that universities themselves should be much more engaged in being able to step into this space and encourage uh, not only people who have graduated with higher degrees uh, or an undergraduate degree, what have you, in, uh, in, in research in the scientific field, but also make that and fold that within the educational process itself. I think um, the standard way of uh, going through uh, as a student uh, leaves a lot to be desired. It certainly did in my day, and I am not convinced that it's wildly different today than it was uh, 20 or 30 years ago. No, not 20, 30 or anyway, whatever, a while ago. Um, and, uh, and I think... Speaking from personal experience, the idea of interacting with people, of reframing what high-level researchers are saying, of trying to 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 look from the top down, as it were, at some of the fascinating uh, areas of research within a field, can be tremendously stimulating and tremendously informative and tremendously worthwhile for the students. And I think much more of that could and should be done and unfolded in the educational uh, uh, practice and structure. And it wouldn't cost uh, anything, basically. Uh, and, and I think much more of that sort of training should be done rather than forcing people to sit in lectures and mindlessly write down stuff which is uh, copied on a blackboard, which in turn has been copied from books. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're mindlessly iterating some monastic tradition, which doesn't have any significant pedagogical value whatsoever. That's great. Uh, great advice. <laughs> So how did you come to write the conversation about a a series of books? And uh, today, particularly, we're talking about conversations about astrophysics and cosmology. Well, as I was saying, um, the the original intention was actually not to be focused on, uh, on the written word, but to be... uh, to be working on the video side, not even so much on just the audio side, but to be working on the video side and to be having filmed conversations with uh, high-level experts to be able to get a real sense of what their world was like, uh, which is to say their their desires, their fears, their excitement, um, their frustrations, and to really penetrate the world of research 
from the inside and share that with people who don't have that particular experience and orientation. And that's what we did. So every one of the conversations in our series, and we have over 100 of them, every one of them was filmed. We had cameras, we had lights, we had the whole shebang. Um, and, and there's an interesting dynamic that happens when you have a filmed conversation. Uh, and the, the first one is that people take it generally much more seriously than if I would just say, meet me in the coffee shop for half an hour and I have a notebook with me. Uh, or even for that matter, although perhaps to a lesser extent, if I were just to do things in an audio uh, format. So when I, uh, every one of these conversations not only was done by video, but this was in the pre-Zoom era. And so um, what happened is that I would physically go to those places. And in fact, that was some motivation for the genesis of Ideas Roadshow, thinking, okay, it's now affordable. Camera technology is affordable. Uh, editing technology is sufficiently affordable. You can just get on your horse and go uh, talk to the people, and you can capture these insights in a way which wasn't able to be done before. So this was done all through film. And the other aspect was, I say to them, look, you don't have to prepare. We're talking about you. We're talking about your research. We're talking about your life. So there's nothing that you need to do other than show up and give me a couple of hours of your time. And that's typically what it took. It took each of the conversations was of the order of two to three hours, Occasionally, it would be a little shorter. Occasionally, it would be a little longer. But that was the general format. Um, and that, that creates an interesting dynamic because, as I say, with the cameras and all the rest of that, people dress up. They block off the time. They put their phones away. They, don't, uh, they focus for a prolonged period of time in a way that they wouldn't do in the normal course. So that was an essential aspect of what a, the environment that we had created. And of course, when you're doing something new, often you don't appreciate these things until years later when you can step back and say, what is it that we've done properly? What is it that we've done that's, that's not very good? So that was part of the whole uh, situation. And then uh, years later, uh, and I mentioned this before with respect to the pandemic, years later, um, there was a sense of saying, okay, well, how should this content this long format content for a general curious non-specialist, how should this best be phrased? Should it be done through video? Should it be done through audio podcasts? Or should it be done through print? And there are advantages to all of these types of media. And for a long time, we were in the database creation game and phrasing things for how can we keep the attention of a, of a high school student or perhaps even a middle school student uh, how can we do things in a pedagogically uh, important way to be able to add sufficient content within a, a specific curriculum for a teacher doing this and that? And those things, of course, tilt your uh, prioritization and tilt your orientation. But once we got away from that, which took quite a long time, uh, and I asked myself, okay, well, how can I, I imagine somebody who's a retired engineer who's in... Alabama or somebody who is, uh, you know, a postal worker in, in, in Switzerland or what have you, who is interested and excited and motivated uh, by these types of ideas and wants to expose himself to this uh, to this world. What's the best way to frame the content that we have in such a way that is faithful to that content and can allow for that high level engagement? And when I asked myself that question, the best answer was print. Uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, one is that uh, that when you edit a long format conversation in print, you can frame the ideas and present the ideas in such a way that they can be maximally interesting and maximally stimulating. It's wonderful to have an informal conversation that rambles here and rambles there and goes up and goes down. But in order to afterwards present the material in a way which is maximally coherent, particularly to somebody who not, might not necessarily have any specialized knowledge, you have to do a lot of work. You have to not only rephrase the actual sentences and the words, because sadly people do not speak the way that they write. Um, and I know this all too well for myself, because it's a terribly painful thing when you have to analyze your own speech and recognize all the errors that you made uh, after the fact. Um, just in terms of framing the content and framing the ideas, a lot of work has to be done. So we broke things into specific chapters. 
And then we added questions for discussion at the end of each chapter to force people to stop and say, hmm, I wonder if I really understood this or that's an interesting point. Of course, they don't have to, but they have the opportunity to do so. I put in an introduction at the beginning of every single one of these conversations to highlight the main ideas um, as I saw them so that when people go through that content, they are prepared. They have some background already as they begin the conversation which is quite different than if they were just to see the raw footage. I can, I can assure you of that. Um, so uh, that's an extremely long-winded answer. That's what you get when you talk to me, unfortunately. Uh, that's an extremely long-winded and, and roundabout way of saying that it came to my attention that for a general audience, the best way to do things is to do them uh, by print. And then the last thing is that we made these collections, and you were just referred to the Astrophysics and Cosmology collection. So then you have another degree of freedom, as it were, because now you're, you're looking at more than one particular individual, and you're pointing out commonalities that may exist, or differences in approach that may exist. And there's another feature that enables you to be able to compare and contrast different perspectives and, and get an even broader sense of the research landscape, which I think is also particularly valuable and if properly done, can come out very well in print as well. Um, yeah, so I think that the way you approach um, bringing this information out is really clever because you have both videos and then, as you said, a bit more structured and um, a little bit more thoughtful uh, turning it into print. But the video part, for example, I don't know if you can say my generation, <laughs> we turn the video into audio files and then we take them to, to work, for example, if you're doing in, in the lab, you're doing some repetitive uh, experiments, uh, you would be listening to conversations or you go for a run and you would listen to your paper, you would listen to um, uh, to some podcast. So basically in, in one whammy, you would cover different audiences and approaches. And that is very important to have different ways to approach different people, isn't it? Sure, absolutely. And I'm certainly not, uh, I'm not, in any way implying that this is the only way or this is the best way. And I completely agree. Uh, podcasts in particular, I, I think it's interesting what's happened because when I started this uh, back in 2012, uh, there was a real focus and attention on video. And uh, video was, I guess, the new thing and the 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 video technology on, on phones was getting stronger and stronger as it of course has continued to do. Um, and people were, I think of the view that, well, that's, that's going to replace everything. Everything is going to be video. And that certainly led us down into video. And there are some things that happen with video. There's no question about it, but I think one of the more interesting developments that's happened over the past decade or so is that people have, recognized and appreciated the power of audio in a way that they might not have done before, or that might not, at least that, that might not have been expected. And that's for the reasons that you mentioned, um, or at least includes the reasons that you mentioned, which is to say that people can engage. It's not so much the content itself all the time. It's often when you engage with the content. So uh. if you're going for a walk or if you're in the car, or if you're commuting to, to work, or, or what have you, um, that provides a way of, that provides a certain amount of time to engage with content in a different way. And that's something that I think the podcast and the audio space has naturally picked up on and harnessed. It's interesting also if you look back in time, because uh, this is... Uh, in many ways, continuing a tradition. I mean, let me let me be a little bit blunt here. Um, if you look at at people who, if you look at efforts in the idea space, as it were, if you look at who has done really interesting work in conveying ideas in a in an honest and faithful and stimulating way for people who want something more than just a quick soundbite or a quick hit. Um, of course, radio just beats the pants off television. Television is, is almost, not always, but, uh, but has a tendency to be superficial. It has a tendency to, be, to rely far too much on, uh, on video and on special effects and on sound bites and that sort of thing. So if you want high-level, thoughtful, 
and I'm, I'm talking, you know, 30 years ago, so well before the podcast era, 20 years ago. Um, if you if you're looking for high level uh, ideas that that are not done in print, you'd look at at radio. You'd look at whether it's you're in the United States and you look at NPR, whether you're in, in the UK and you look at BBC or CBC in Canada, or presumably the Australians have something as well, ABC, I guess it would be called, or, or what have you. Um, in France, you have uh, France Inter or France Culture or, 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 or what have you. So um, the tradition of thoughtfully and, and in a stimulating way presenting ideas uh, has existed in radio, and I see a lot of that continuing in the podcast space, uh, certainly very much including what you're doing. And I think there's a reason for that, for all the reasons that you mentioned. And and it's interesting that no matter how good the technology can get on the video side, it doesn't seem to be able to keep up on the on the quality side uh, with, uh, with audio. And so what do we have today in 2021? Well, we have very stimulating and thoughtful podcasts that all sorts of people are producing all around the world. We still have good quality audio. And then we have a bunch of, you know, cats on YouTube, right? So it's okay. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but, um, (laughs) but it's, in some ways it's not that far from the truth. So it's not all about the technology. It's what you do with it. And, and how you can um, sufficiently and engagingly frame the content. Yeah, good things in, good things out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in your uh, book, The Conversations About Astrophysics, you mm-hmm. feature five stories. And uh, can you tell us what made you choose to include these particular stories? Sure. Um, so I guess I should say, as witnessed by my earlier comments, Physics in general is a bit of an exception to, uh, to the Ideas Roadshow story insofar as most of the people I had conversations with, such as uh, people, uh, historians or, or psychologists or neuroscientists uh, uh, or anthropologists or people who did media studies or, or philosophers or what have you, I, I hadn't met before. Uh, many of them, I, I didn't even know very much about their, their work at all. The physicists, uh, on the other hand, because of my experiences, uh, I did know uh, most, not all, but most of the physicists uh, whom I, I spoke with uh, for IDS Roadshow. And when it came to astrophysics and cosmology, um, there are some obvious choices of people. Um uh, and uh, in particular, the people who are involved are uh, Roger Penrose and Paul Steinhardt, uh, Scott Tremaine, Justin Curry, and Rocky Kolb. So of those five, uh, four were people uh, whom I actually knew quite well. And the fifth, uh, Rocky Kolb, I, I didn't know. So, uh, But I had certainly heard of Rocky, and I knew his position, uh, his work, and I, I knew of him. But I, I had never had the, uh, the occasion to speak to him before. At least I don't think so. Um, so I picked them because they they represented an interesting cross section of uh, different aspects of physics, uh, and some of them were obviously uh, extremely eminent and 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 really needed to be uh, needed to be addressed. Or I was just delighted to have the opportunity to talk to. So I've had the, the good fortune. We'll start with Roger. Uh, uh, for whom I, I just have uh, de facto infinite respect. Uh, I think he's uh, one of the most remarkable intellects of uh, uh, certainly of, of the age. And it's been an honor and a privilege for me to, uh, to get to know him. And I have had uh, several opportunities to get to know Roger. He was certainly somebody uh, uh, of whom I had heard an enormous amount and, and I had read an enormous amount, even before I started a Perimeter Institute, and one of my um, great indulgences, as it were, but also I think a, a good tactical decision was to get him involved in the development of the Institute. And he played, as did Scott Tremaine, and as later did Paul Steinhardt, uh, a formative role in the development of the Institute. And for that matter, so did Justin in his own way. So all of those people I had come to know, 
and come to respect and recognize them um, in terms of their uh, their intellectual acuity, their insight, uh, and their uh, their fundamental decency and approachability as well. Um, so there was that, uh, but there's also the the ideas, of course, which is the most significant thing. So with Roger, the what we talked about, we talked about his book. Uh, Cycles of Time, when he talks about his uh, his own particular cosmological theory uh, of a cyclic universe, uh, and and so we got into the details of that, and I think that is an obvious topic to include in this general uh, ambit of astrophysics and cosmology. But even more specifically, Roger has been concerned with entropy considerations uh, at the Big Bang for a very, very long time. And he has been concerned about how, in his view, uh, insufficient numbers of people uh, have been concerned about it themselves. Uh, and that's clearly something that uh, that has frustrated him. And he's tried to approach in all sorts of different ways, be it, be it through his latest theory, be it through the, the, the vial curvature hypothesis, what have you. And and so it was. It was a, an obvious and important challenge to say, right? Well, what what is bothering him, and how can I try to express what is bothering him in a way which people who do not have a technical background can understand and can get a sense of? Um, and that has ramifications in all sorts of different directions. It is what is the issue that is outstanding? Uh, to what extent is that issue addressed? Uh, successfully or unsuccessfully by ideas such as cosmic inflation or or what have you, and how can I bring those concerns to light? And so that was that's an obvious starting point if you're going to do conversations about astrophysics and cosmology uh, in the in the 21st century, and you don't talk to Roger Penrose, then I think you're missing something. So that's an obvious, uh, I guess, point to begin. Um, Scott Tremaine uh, brings. Uh, I think a really important uh, component to to the picture, which is more in the phenomenological uh, zone, which is not to say that Scott's not not a, a incredibly impressive theorist, and he's done a tremendous amount of work uh, uh, that that is just everything from you know shepherding satellites to comets to 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 galactic structure i mean he's he's a he's a remarkably uh, strong and broad intellect and you don't get to to be uh, uh the, the the chief astrophysicist at the institute for advanced study unless uh, you're somebody of just a you know spectacular accomplishment and in intellect um but what scott also brings to the table is he brings i would say a, a, a an emphatic tie-in to the real world, and that's something that he was he was always pushing in his position as actually uh, the chairman of, of this, our scientific advisory committee at Perimeter, was to make sure that we don't just become a place, and I'm talking about Perimeter now, uh, that is that is solely motivated towards wild speculative uh, theoretical entities, but also really pays attention to the physical world. That was something that he he was very strongly um, pushing. And so I think, again, similarly, if you're going to do something that has to do with astrophysics, uh, you better include someone of that persuasion and uh, tied to those uh, accomplishments. Um, when I look at, at, at Paul Steinhardt, the story is, is, is also uh, a rather obvious one. So as many, many of your listeners will know, Paul was one of the the primary developers of the theory of cosmic inflation and is now one of its harshest critics. Uh, and I think that story in and of itself uh, makes him rather spectacularly qualified to give his personal story about why he was attracted. What is it that he thinks uh, uh, are, what are the fascinating seductive aspects of, of, the, of the theory and the ideas and why he is now disenchanted. And to do that in a way which is not sensationalistic, again, which is not just out to provoke controversy for the sake of controversy, but to really explore those ideas and explore his development and his change and his excitement and his frustrations. And I think that too is a unique window 
on, on the world of research and scholarship from the inside. Uh, Justin is somebody who uh, I also came to know at Perimeter. Was a, 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 we, we were very fortunate to have hired Justin in the relatively early days at Perimeter. He subsequently uh, moved to University of Pennsylvania, where he is now uh, uh, very productively carrying out his research and teaching. Um, Justin, I knew, was not only somebody who had a broad background and who worked on a wide variety of, uh, of different ideas, many of them were phenomenologically oriented in terms of trying to come up with different ways of attacking dark matter uh, with uh, particle models and so forth and so on, um, but also a very broad-minded fellow who was able to present a, a, a wide palette and look at the big picture of what's actually uh, what's happening in the world. And he did not disappoint. One of the things that I think he provided as a real uh, uh, contribution was giving the modified Newtonian dynamics, so-called Mon theory, uh, a little bit more of its due. Now he is not himself a Mondian, but I think he's he's rather more fair-minded in his assessment of its strengths and weaknesses than than other people. Physicists, this may come as a shock to some of your listeners, but physicists uh, are not always the most fair-minded of individuals. Um, and uh, Justin, I think, is singular in his ability to take a more objective view and make more measured assessments, and he did not disappoint. Uh, and he also, being uh, somewhat younger, reflective of the next generation, was able to give a different sort of perspective. He went into the field of cosmology at a time when it was already something that was uh beginning to be, if not actually quite exciting to be going into, and real science. Uh, one of the interesting sociological aspects of cosmology as a discipline is that when I was a, a, an undergraduate, cosmology was was looked uh, askance upon, and was pe- most people were quite disdainful of it, uh, looking at it as nothing more than sort of applied metaphysics, or perhaps not even applied metaphysics. Um, so the idea that you went from something which was considered not even real science to perhaps one of the most data-driven and dynamic areas of scientific inquiry in, in, in a generation is itself, I think, a fascinating story. Uh, and lastly, uh, we move to Rocky, and Rocky is somebody uh, who I think in many ways personifies that very trans- transition. So his work in really looking uh, at combining a particle uh, physics with uh, with astrophysics and cosmology, representing that very transmission, the transition rather, not only in his work but uh, being somebody who was at the forefront uh, of that, and in many ways driving it in his position at Fermilab, uh, and also somebody who I knew was a great communicator of science and scientific ideas. Uh, he struck me as an ideal complement. So I was very, very pleased to have all of those people involved. And I think if you look from a from a, a thirty thousand foot level, um, then it, it's you get these wonderful connections and comparisons and contrasts that begin to appear. And I think uh, those five people do do a great job in highlighting that. Yeah. So through the conversations, we can learn uh, about many fascinating topics. Uh- like Big Bang, dark energy, dark matter, or whatever that is. <laughs> Cosmic microwave background, you can look at the galaxies yeah. and uh, some interesting ekpyrotic universe by Paul Steinhardt. So I'm not really sure what that is. Can you maybe give us a hint? Well, uh, so I can give you my my version, uh, which you should take with a truckload of salt. I guess before I start, uh, Paul wrote a book uh, on that, uh, I can't actually remember what it's called, with Neil Turek, and uh, I probably have it here at the end. I probably mentioned what the book was called. Uh, yeah, Endless Universe is what it's called. So if you really want to know about the Ekpyrotic Universe, you should uh, you should read that. Uh, but I can hopefully give you a tiny bit of a, uh, of a preface to be able to set it up. So the the idea of the ekpyrotic universe, or at least one of its motivations, uh, is that we have to think a little bit differently because we're not convinced that 
that the theory of cosmic inflation solves all of our problems. So I guess that's that's one motivational point to it. Uh, and and so the the basic concepts that are that uh, that are invoked is that the standard view of the Big Bang used to be certainly when I was uh, a student it was um, you can't even ask the question what happened before the Big Bang because at the Big Bang uh, and you see these you know, sort of science fictiony or whatever Nova type of uh, documentaries or what have you. Uh, you had this big explosion, and the, the 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 standard paradigmatic view was that the very it wasn't just that there was an explosion that happened in space and time. The way to look at it is that space and time themselves were created uh, at this point in the Big Bang. So the axes, if you will, were created at the same time. So uh, uh, it it it's a nonsensical question to ask what happened before the Big Bang because there was no time before the Big Bang, and that was the that was the standard view. Uh, that people would trot out whenever you ask questions like uh, what happened before the Big Bang, uh, which was a great way of shutting down conversations. Um, subsequently, some people have started to look more carefully and, 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 and posit uh, different ideas uh, that flew in the face of that. And Paul is one of them. Uh, Roger, incidentally, is another with his idea. I believe uh, Gabriel Veneziano was, uh, also had some, some ideas uh, way back about this as well. But the, the notion is that, well, we don't take the standard view that nothing happened before the Big Bang or you can't ask those sorts of questions. But we look at the Big Bang as an event, as it were, that was in, that is embedded in a larger... Uh, cosmic history, uh, and and in fact, and so the ekpyrotic universe was this, uh, as I understand it, was this way of framing the situation again, uh, in in a uh, by by being able to to point at a pre Big Bang physics and try to make the link between pre Big Bang con- conditions and and the Big Bang or post Big Bang using these structures known as brains uh, that, that arose in the context of string theory. So, uh, so those, are the, those are the motivations, and, and I should probably stop there before I get myself into too much trouble. I'm fairly convinced that that's not completely wrong, uh, but I would urge <laughs> you to, uh, uh, to, to pick up Paul's book and, uh, and read, read through that. And uh, as uh, if you want to get a deeper understanding of what the ekpyrotic universe is. Now, I mean, there are some references to that in, um, in conversations about astrophysics and cosmology, because as it happens, not only uh, does Paul talk about that at the very end when he says, what sorts of things can you, uh, uh, can, how can you go forwards from the problems that if you want to discard inflation? And he talks about going from the Big Bang to a bounce, as he calls it. So that will explain in our book some of the motivations as well. I should mention that Justin talks a little bit about his work on the Ekpyrotic Universe, because as it happens, Justin was a graduate student at Princeton of Paul's. And so he did some of his, his PhD was actually uh, involved in the, in the rather speculative notion of the, the uh, at the time, well, Still, I would say of the ekpyrotic universe. Um, so, so that's that should give you an example, one example of the way people are, I think, thinking beyond standard paradigms, as well as the power of those standard paradigms, and how for a long time it was considered almost heretical to consider uh, going beyond them. So you yourself, after all of these conversations and interviews uh, with uh, experts in the field, have you learned uh, a lot uh, new things from this experience? Maybe you discovered some topics that you wanted to learn a little bit more about, and how did it uh, impact your thinking? Um, well, there, there are a couple of things that uh, I guess... That, that were brought to light personally for me. Um, first, I, I would say that as I, as I mentioned earlier, you get a you get a deeper understanding 
of any scientific issue, or in fact, any issue whatsoever, when you have to prepare for something. And again, this is something I don't have to tell you, but perhaps it's worth emphasizing to, to, your, to your listeners. Uh, so if you go into any conversation, if you go into a conversation about uh, uh, astrophysics, or if you go into a conversation uh, uh, about medieval history or what have you, um, of course, you, you want to extract as much information as possible. And the very act of knowing that you're going to be talking to somebody forces you to ask yourself, what has this person really done? What are the issues uh, that they are concerned with? And so that itself can be a very intellectually stimulating experience. So, and it's, so that's, that's just a, a general statement. Uh, I'll, I'll try to be a little bit more specific to answer your question. But before I do, I should say that, again, the physics conversations are a little bit different. Um, and there's an irony that's involved. Because often when you know somebody, when you have some personal background with that person, uh, you get to know them you might take some things for granted and it might actually inhibit the, uh, your your development somewhat ironically. So if I'm talking to somebody who, again, is a medieval historian and I know nothing about this, uh, there's no problem. I say, okay, I don't know anything about this particular uh, uh, field and I'm just going to go and uh, and, and read about it and, and approach it with a blank slate. Uh, because I may have had some personal background with people before, um, I. I find myself almost forcing myself to think anew, uh, to discard some of the, my prior uh, biases and, and preconceptions and also look at them in a different context. So Paul Steinhardt, I only knew, of course, I knew uh, at a high level what he had done, but I hadn't really uh, read very much about what he, uh, many of his papers. I hadn't looked very carefully at what he had done. Uh, I had only known him, in fact, in an administrative context, which is a terrible way to know an individual, I should add. Um, and so it was refreshing and very intellectually stimulating for me when I started talking to him and having read some of his work in more detail to get a sense of the extent of his concern. So, for example, his criticisms of inflation, uh, I had always been a little bit, uh, I had never been overwhelmingly convinced by inflation for various different reasons, but I had never thought about it very carefully. I, I still don't pretend to have thought about it carefully, but I was forced to think about it more carefully and to really examine some of the criticisms that he and other people were levying at it. And uh, that gave me a much deeper appreciation of, uh, of some things that I think, uh, gosh, really need to be addressed and haven't been addressed. The sense of things being swept under the rug, I, I think, was much stronger having spoken to him. Uh, I was shocked uh, by how Roger Penrose, for all of his eminence, uh, often, I think, for the last 10 or 15, or perhaps longer uh, years, has to some extent been shunted aside, and his criticisms have not been taken seriously, and almost as if they were represented as the the standard physics, uh, uh, bitter uh, uh, denunciations of, of, an, of an old man who can't keep up with the, the, the field, the, the sort of Einstein paradigm, you know, well, he mm. used to have it and now he's just an old guy and he just, he doesn't want things to change. And that's the box that very often Roger was slotted into. And, and it was interesting through the conversation with him that he himself spontaneously and quite explicitly alluded to that and said, this is what's happening to me. When I asked him, your concerns about the entropy considerations in the early Big Bang, whether they think that your particular theory successfully addresses them or not, do you get a sense that people are taking those concerns more seriously and, and realize that there is a problem that needs to be addressed and the current paradigm, the current model is not addressing them? Are you getting that sense? And he turned to me and he said, no, I'm not. What happens is I go places, they invite me for a talk, they clap politely, they say, that was a wonderful talk, please come back and give us another talk really soon. And then I leave and I suspect that behind my back, they're saying, he's, you know, he's lost it, this guy, what's happening to me? He, he, what's happening to him? He used to be a great physicist, he used to have... Uh, these, these, uh, used to do these wonderful things, and now he's got all these crazy ideas. And he said that on camera. 
And that to me was very trenchant and very revealing and very frustrating because again, it's indicative of something that I have personally seen myself professionally, which is that people will make up all sorts of reasons to not explicitly address uh, a concern based upon scientific or rational grounds. And instead they'll frame it in an ad hominem way or they will just avoid it or they'll just be dogmatic. Now that's not to say of course, that he's right and other people are wrong. Um, I certainly don't don't have the knowledge to be able to weigh in and say anything particularly revealing. But what I can say with assurance is that this determination to avoid addressing structural flaws, to avoid even addressing the problems that are being raised, is something which I think is uh, very concerning, and I've seen it before. And uh, it would be nice if uh, if if people would uh, if that was brought to enough people's attention that they were forced to intellectually justify their positions again without weighing in or saying that I know what's right and I know what's wrong because I clearly do not, but I do know when subjects are not being addressed, and and that certainly has happened. Uh, more specifically, I mentioned Scott's. Uh, contributions with respect to uh, to comets and shepherding satellites and so forth. Before I went into that conversation, I read quite a bit and and really came to appreciate what he had done and, and some really spectacular uh, ideas and results that he had that I was vaguely aware of, but I didn't know. So I, I wouldn't say that that arose through the conversation, but it, it arose because of the fact that I knew I was going to have the conversation. Yes, yes, perhaps we do need a more honest and open conversations and debates in the science. And there has been a movement to the open science uh, uh, recently, so maybe that would be a little a little bit uh, more conductive to to that. Yeah. So we've taken a lot of your time, and I would like to ask, what are you currently working on? Well, uh, I am... So I mentioned the, these conversations that I've had, uh, over 100 conversations. So I'm finishing up reformulating all of them in print. I'm just finishing up that up now, and we're going to be offering uh, all 100 are now available, uh, spanning a wide variety of different fields. And then we have, uh, as you might imagine, 20 different collections of five conversations each. So I'm just putting the finishing touches on that. Uh, and then moving forwards, I have a whole bunch of new projects. So there's really a bifurcation. I mentioned earlier my determination to use uh, the video medium or the film medium in a particular way to, uh, to present ideas within a documentary style format. So I'm going to be making several films, uh, ideas-oriented uh, films, uh, based upon my experience and based upon that, uh, that inclination. So specifically what's next up, I'm, I'm going to be doing uh, a documentary style ideas driven film on the, uh, on the coronavirus uh, pandemic and also looking at it from a wide variety of different perspectives, both public policy and also uh, biologically and, and environmentally and what have we learned from it. That would be the main orientation there. Uh, I'm, and then at the same time, so that will be in uh, in film. And in fact, we founded a new venture called uh, Ideas on Film, where those types of uh, projects will be moving forward. So I also have in mind to do something in a film medium on the incompleteness theorems. Uh, I'm thinking about doing some animated uh, films, although I, I need to obviously partner with somebody who's an animator because I, I know nothing about that. Um, and then simultaneously, the idea is to keep Ideas Roadshow moving forwards as a vehicle for these conversations, because I'm very strongly convinced that the conversational format uh, uh, has has a lot to offer in the way that we've painstakingly developed it. And we'll be moving forwards with a couple of projects a year uh, with Ideas Roadshow in print. So I have a variety of different uh, ideas and subjects to move forwards with. But the only thing that's a little different than what we've done previously is to make the focus a little bit narrower. So rather than have conversations about neuroscience or conversations about history or conversations about astrophysics and cosmology or conversations about philosophy, we're going to have conversations about very specific subjects. So, for example, uh, one thing that I'm, I'm planning on doing in the, in the 
in the months ahead is having uh, a series of five conversations about the uh, German-American political theorist, Hannah Arendt. And, uh, and so we'll have uh, five conversations by experts and specialists about her thinking and the relevance of her thought and her life and so forth that we can frame again within both an ebook and a paperback version. So those are the two uh, directions, as it were, both film through ideas on film to present documentary style ideas driven films and Ideas Roadshow continuing as a way of uh, holding these and, and then developing these conversations around more specific topics through print. So where can our listeners find more information about the work and also the conversation uh, conversations about uh, book series? So uh, there's a bit of a, uh, unfortunately, conflation because we're just sorting things out now. But all of the all of the books are on all the in, in ebook form, and of course in paperback. You can certainly go to Amazon. You can look on uh, Google uh, within Amazon or whatever Ideas Roadshow or my name Howard Burton or Conversations About X, and you will get uh, a listing of those. Uh, more comprehensively, you can go to our right now our ideas on film website so that's uh ideas hyphen on hyphen film.com and then there's an ideas roadshow subpage there where we list all of the 100 conversations and all of the collections they each have their own page so you can check those out for yourselves uh and then you can get a sense of uh the upcoming projects on ideas on film and in time we will uh we will structure things a little bit uh, more clearly along the lines of what I just described to you. Uh, and, but right now, I think the go-to website would be uh, ideas-on-film.com, where you can find out a little bit about, uh, you can find out quite a lot about Ideas Roadshow and about upcoming film projects, as well as a little bit about me, because that's, of course, an incredibly fascinating topic. So I'm sure you can uh, find out all uh, that you want to your heart's content there. Excellent. And I would encourage our listeners also to uh, download uh, other two um, conversations uh, with Howard about conversations about neuroscience and conversations about biology on our uh, uh, science channel or the New Books Network. So, Howard, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been a really fascinating discussion. Well, thank you, Galena. It was it was wonderful for me too, and uh, and best of luck with what you're doing because I think it's it's fantastic. And uh, and please continue. Thank you.